It was the spring of 2008. It was my final semester at Cedarville University. And I was in my anthropology and angiology class on a Tuesday. I know it's a mouthful, but <laughs> crazy class I had to take. And I was, I was there, and I got a phone call from my dad. And I saw that he called, and so I put it on. Uh, I ignored it and allowed it to go to voicemail. And then right away, he called back again immediately, and I knew that something was wrong. So I took my phone, and I went outside into the hallway, and I called my dad back, and I could barely understand him because he was crying so hard. I said, Dad, what's wrong? He said, Norma, who was my stepmom, she had the flu. But she was admitted in the hospital, and she wasn't doing well. And I said, Dad, the flu, how did this happen? See, my, my stepmom, she had rheumatoid arthritis, and she had to take a medicine that would help alleviate the pain. But a side effect of that medicine was a compromised immune system. So when she got sick, she got really sick. Well, this time, she got really, really sick. And so I hung up the phone with my dad, and I, I rushed back in to my class to get my books. And as I was about to leave, my professor, he just stopped, and he just prayed for me in front of the whole class which was so meaningful to me. And after he was done praying, I, I ran across campus because my uh, class was across from my dorm and ran across, got as many clothes as I could, and I got in my car and I drove home. And as I was driving, my dad called again, and this time he was hysterical. And I said, Dad, what's going on? He said, when he walked into the hospital, there was a code blue. And he had no idea that it was for my stepmom. See, my dad is a truck driver, and he was on the road when he initially got the phone call about my stepmom, and so he rushed back, and as he's walking in, he hears the code blue, has no idea it's for my stepmom, and goes up to where she is, and now she's in the ICU, and she's in critical condition. Unbeknownst to us, her body uh, went into septic shock, and she had a coma, or she was then placed into a coma because of the code blue. So the first time my dad saw her was her in an intubated state. I remember I, was, I got there and I, and I walked up to the room, and it is jarring. When the last time you saw someone, they were very healthy, and you said goodbye to them, and you thought you would see them again, and then the next time you did see them, she was in that state. I remember gathering with some of my friends, and uh, even some of my friends came up uh, from, the or from church uh, and came, and my whole guy small group, and we circled, and we prayed, and, and we really believed that she was going to be healed. And I really had to wrestle with that, because I didn't see her being healed, but I kept praying, we were praying, and then a week later, on a Thursday morning, I got the call that we should come in and say our last goodbyes. And so I, I walked into this room, and it was my dad and my grandfather, me, and my stepmom's two daughters, her mom and her sister. And there we were saying her last goodbye as we had to pull the plug. And I remember just holding my dad up, and it was just such an emotional time, something that I just was not expecting. And most devastatingly about all of this, it was Valentine's Day, <laughs> not the day that you want to lose the love of your life. So she passed on a Thursday, and we were able to get it in the newspaper so we could have the funeral as quickly as possible. And the funeral was on a Saturday. And I remember I was just about to graduate with my undergrad degree. 
Uh, I was a lot younger than I am now, and my dad wanted me to help be a part of the funeral service. And I've never participated in a funeral service at that time. I remember on my laptop typing out words, and every time I would type a word out, it just felt hollow. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I address my broken dad and my broken stepsisters and my stepmom's mom who had to lose a daughter and, and her sisters? How do, you, how do you capture the right words to say when someone's life is broken? Since then, I've had the privilege to help with between 20 and 30 funerals. And I'm telling you, each one of them is a privilege and you may say, well, how can doing a funeral be a privilege? But when you are trusted to be there in people's most vulnerable state, it's almost like you're standing on hollow ground. And every time that I have to do a funeral, whether it's for a four-year-old, 20-year-old, or I just recently did one for a 94-year-old, every time that I've typed out the words, just like I did with my stepmom, I, I think to myself, how can I share hope with people who all they experience right now is hopelessness? And you in this room probably understand that feeling. Whether it's the loss of a spouse or a parent or a child or a grandchild or a best friend, you are there and you're not sure how to pick up the broken pieces. And when you ask somebody, put into words how you feel right now, they'll respond with, I can't. There are no words to describe how broken I really am. We're starting this new message series called Encounters with Jesus. And when Pastor Jay and Todd and I were talking about what story we wanted to teach out of the Gospels, I told the guys right away, I want to talk about an incredible story of reality and pain and hope. Because all of us experience and need all of those things when it comes to the grieving process and struggling with death. And I want to say up front, when I say death and grief, primarily I'll be talking about someone who lost a family member, but also that doesn't it, it negate people who are grieving the loss of a relationship. Maybe that's divorce, or you're not speaking to your child anymore, or you lost a friendship, or maybe you lost a job. Grief and death can be living, or it could be truly death. Regardless, I'm hoping that this encounter between Jesus and a family will affirm what you're going through, but will also give you hope to keep going. And this story is found in John chapter 11. It's the story of Jesus and a friendship that he has with his family. And this is how it begins in John chapter 11. A man named Lazarus was sick, and he lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, Jesus was friends with this family, but he was not with them when Lazarus was sick. And, and Mary and Martha knew that Jesus loved him and would have wanted to know that there was something wrong with Lazarus. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus 
telling him, Lord, your dear friend is sick. Now, when Jesus receives this message from this messenger, his response is very Jesus-like. <laughs> when you read about Jesus, just when you think you have him figured out, he just blows you out of the water with something out of left field. And this is one of those responses. He says, when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Now, if you were to fast forward a few verses, Jesus here says Lazarus won't die, but we see that Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says he's dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there for you, or for now, you will really believe. Come, let's go and see him. And when you read that, you think, okay, Jesus, you said he's not going to die. And then a few verses later, he's dead. Make up your mind. What is happening here? And that's what is amazing about Jesus. He will talk about reality, but he also sees the bigger picture. Because it is true, Jesus is dead, but it is also true. Excuse me, Lazarus is dead, but also true that Lazarus won't always be dead. And what I love about this story, honestly, is not what happens with Lazarus. It's what happens with Jesus' encounter with Mary and Martha. Because when he encounters these two grieving sisters who has no idea about this conversation, about their brother, all they know is the reality that their beloved brother is gone and they're not sure what to do with it. So they bring it to Jesus. And this is oftentimes a, a passage of scripture that I also share in a funeral because it brings us reality, but it also brings us hope. Two different sisters, two different responses, but both needed. So I want to start with uh, a sister named Mary. And when you read the story, it actually begins with Martha and Jesus, but I want to just skip ahead. We'll come back to Martha, but I want to look at how Jesus responds to Mary first. Here's what happens with Mary and Jesus. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I love Mary's vulnerability here and her honesty. She's like, look, I don't know what you were doing, and it probably was really important, but was more important that you should have had your bottom here <laughs> And you should have been here. When I needed you the most, you should have been here. Because I know who you are. And if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. How often you and I say this to God. God, where are you? If you would just show up, this situation would take care of itself. I need you right now. Where are you? Mary was so honest with Jesus. But Jesus' response just blows me away. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. They told him, Jesus, come and see. The only words that Jesus said at this point is, where have you put him? He asked, and then Jesus wept. If you have ever lost somebody, you understand that people mean well, but they often say things that are hollow. 
And while they're trying to be helpful, oftentimes it isn't. And, and if you're like me and your family member or your friend is grieving and you go to the funeral or you're texting them afterwards, you're trying to find the right words and you don't want to say. And so if you're like me, you end up saying things like this. <laughs> they're in a better place. Or, hey, let me know if you need anything. Or you're surrounded by people who love you. Or I know it's hard now, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. All of us have said something like this. And I just want to teach you, just for a moment, why all of these things are wrong to say. I'm not saying that they're not right in the sense of reality. All of these things are probably true, but to the grieving person who is receiving our words, it is really hard for them because you and I, we want to feel better about ourselves and we want to say something to help, but for them, it's not helpful. For instance, they're in a better place. The grieving person, what they really want to say to you after they say thank you, they're really screaming inside, I don't want them there. So what if they're in heaven? They're not with me. The better place is for them to be by my side. I want them to go to heaven someday, but not now. We don't want to say those things anymore. Or let me know if you need anything. We say that because we really mean it. And we're well-meaning people. We want, listen, I really am here. I remember my mom and we were at uh, my stepdad's funeral. I kept hearing this phrase over and over and over again. And I finally asked my mom, how does that make you feel? And she said, you know what? It's as if people are handing me a blank check and just say, hey, write whatever amount you want in there. What do you do with that? You don't say, let me know if you need anything, because let me tell you, the grieving person will never let you know. They may want to, but they don't even know what they need, let alone they're going to reach out to you and ask, because their world is broken in trillions of pieces, and they're trying to pick it up. They don't know what to ask of. And so what you and I need to do, instead of saying, hey, I'm here for you, and you don't hear back from that friend, you think, okay, what does this friend really need right now? Well, this friend probably isn't eating because they don't want to eat. Well, I'm going to show up with food, and I'm just going to give it to them. I don't even need to ring the doorbell. What I'm going to do is I'm going to set the food on their front step. I'm going to text them and say, hey, I brought food over for you. Whatever, If you want to eat it now, great. If you want to freeze it, great. But it's there. I just was letting you know I was thinking about you awesome. Or you show up at their house, and you bang on their door, and they open the door, and they've been crying, and they've been struggling, and you, you're there with mop and a broom and a bucket, and you say, I'm coming in. I'm cleaning your house. And then you just push them aside. <laughs> or you do whatever they need, but let me tell you, they will not tell you what they need. We have to stop writing blank checks. Or you're surrounded by people who love you. Well, they're not surrounded with the person that they really love. Or the worst thing we can say, it's hard now, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Let me tell you, I know people that are grieving years later, and they still haven't seen that light. And you may say, well, geez, get over it. It's already been a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years. Well, let me tell you, when your life is broken and it's, it's in a million pieces, it's hard to see the light. We don't need to give words. And honestly, you can't help anyways. Truly. There's only one figure that can help. 
And when he entered the scene with Mary, he knew exactly what to say. You know what he said? He said nothing. He wept. Put his arm around Mary. He cried. He cried and he cried. In death, Jesus gives us his presence. It's the greatest gift that he can give us in that moment. Because he weeps with us. Isn't it nice to know that our God enters into our grief and he's there every step of the way with us and he's not saying get over it. He's not saying I'm, I'm here for you. He's saying I'm in it with you and all he does is cry and cry with you. One of the things that I hear so often when I'm helping a family through a funeral that I've finally started to call it out. I do it gently. I'll say to them, how are you doing? And they'll say to me, fine. And I say, you just lost your mom or your friend or your spouse or a child. How are you really doing? They're like, fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm like, oh, are you? Why are you so fine? Why are you so strong right now? And they'll say to me, well, because everyone else is falling apart. And I need to be strong for them. Or they'll say, my love, my friend, my spouse, the person I love the most, they were strong, and I know they would want me to be strong. And what I say back to them is, how do you know? And then I say back to him or her, I say, who put the pressure of holding everybody up on you. When I look at Jesus, he weeps. And if God himself weeps at the loss of his loved one, surely you and I have permission to do that as well. You do not have to be strong. In fact, God commands us to be weak so that he can be strong. You're allowed to crumple. You're allowed to weep. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be sad. You're allowed to be whatever you want because Jesus has you. You don't have to have everybody else. You don't have to have yourself. You can be you in that moment. It's the greatest gift that you can give others and it's the greatest gift that you can give yourself. It's to recognize his presence, to know that he is weeping with you and so you can as well. See that mostly in guys. Guys, you think you have to be strong. We've got to knock off that toxic masculinity that we see in our culture and we need to embrace what really is. That's how we grieve. If God weeps, you better believe you and I can as well. And he promises his presence. And so what I want to do with that for the next few moments is I simply want to look at some scripture that promises this. And I just want to read it over you, and I just want you to sit in it. You may not be grieving right now, but I promise you, you will be. That's nature. It's part of life. And may you recognize these verses now so you have something to stand on. Joshua 1.5. God says, I will not abandon you. Isaiah 40, 29. He gives power to the weak 
and strength to the powerless. My favorite verse. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. This does not mean that the Lord isn't close to us when we're not brokenhearted. But what it means is God gives you an extra measure of his spirit, of his presence when you are brokenhearted. And sometimes that means just feeling his peace when everything is falling apart. Or it's seeing a Bible verse or seeing somebody pray for you that means the world and it hits home. Or or for others of you, it's people who God is using people just to put their arm around you and weep with you. That's God's presence in human form. He is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues us who are crushed. I love this one. What a beautiful picture of God weeping with us. He said he tracks, keeps track of our sorrows. And he collects all of our tears. All the tears that you cry in secret, those are not secret to God. He's bottling those up. He cares about those. He says he's recorded each one in his book. He sees that. He records it. He's with you. He's present. He keeps track of those things. Because what's broken for you, he feels that too. And then a promise that he gives his disciples that is so applicable in this situation. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus wept. And Jesus weeps. And he enters into your sorrow. I know you don't always feel it. I don't either, but let me tell you, feelings don't negate a promise. And whether you feel it or not, he promises to weep alongside of you and put his arm around you and just say that I care as well. But what's interesting about this passage, if you really look at it, something should stick out to you like, whoa, that doesn't, jive. He says this, Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, and then he says, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Why in the world would Jesus be angry? Is he angry at Mary? Is he angry at Lazarus for dying? Why is Jesus angry here? doesn't fit Or maybe it does. You want to know why Jesus gets angry? It's the same reason you and I get angry. Anger is a part of the grieving process. And people say there's five stages of grief, and you go this stage, and then this stage, and then this stage. I thought, those people must not have ever grieved. Because I go this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. It's like a ping pong ball. And what Jesus is saying here is, I am angry angry. The same reason you're angry. I'm angry because it wasn't supposed to end this way. That's the thing. When you're at a funeral, whether you're there for someone young or someone old, you can't help but think, it's not supposed to end this way. That's why you and I can never get used to death. That's why when we hear about someone dying, we shouldn't be surprised because that's how all of us are going to end. We just don't know how that looks, but we're surprised. 
It frustrates us. It angers us. It should not be this way. And if you feel that way, you're so right. When you look back at the beginning, when God created humanity, there was nothing about death in the narrative there. There was life and life abundantly. There was peace. We saw it in the Hebrew word shalom. Everything was perfect. Everything with God and humanity was good. Everything with God, humanity, humanity was good. Everything was great. Peace, joy, love is all there. And then to the chagrin of God's original plan, it broke. It fractured. And it fractured at the moment where humanity says, God, thank you for creating me, but I don't want you to be the God of my life. I want to do that. And at that point, God said, fine, but you have to deal with the consequences. And the consequences are numerous, but the biggest one is the death, the death of a relationship with God, but also the death of our lives. We're separated from God. And what I love about Jesus, Jesus could have said, hey, you did that. You got to deal with the ramifications of it. But Jesus isn't passive. Jesus gets angry. He doesn't just cry tears of, and give you his presence, he gives you himself. He actually does something about it. He goes head on when it comes to death. Because he doesn't just give us his presence, he gives us his promise. The promise that death is not the end. Which brings us to his encounter with Martha. Jesus doesn't weep with her. Jesus confronts her with truth. It's the truth that you and I need to get through this grieving process and death itself. Here's what he says to Martha. He goes, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Remember when he said at the beginning, Lazarus is dead, but he won't die. This is what he's saying. Those who are dead and believe in me won't die. And he says, Martha, do you believe this? And Martha said, yes, I do. Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life which means he comes to this earth and he understands pain. He takes it on himself. He makes himself vulnerable. When you go through something and you say no one will understand, you are not talking about God because he understands all of the things that you and I go through. And he walked perfectly in this life. He, was he walked the life that you and I were supposed to live, but we don't. We like to be our own God. We want to be in control. We live apart from God. And Jesus says, I know what you've done, and I know that what you do, and you could deal with death if you wanted to, but you, you and I know you can't. So I'm going to do something about it. So he comes to this earth, and he dies on the cross. And yes, on the cross is our sin. On the cross is our shame. On the cross is our guilt. But in this situation, what really matters is death itself. Jesus trades his death in for yours. He says, I'm going to die so you don't have to. And he dies on the cross. And then three days later, the resurrection. In other words, death can't keep Jesus in the grave. Yes, he died, but he will not die. And he's raised to new life. And Jesus says, look at me. If you believe this, 
You won't die. Yes, you will be dead, but you won't die. He says, you can take your last breath, but really you believe in me. It's the beginning of your first breath. It's the beginning of life for eternity. How amazing is that? We messed it up. We deserve to die. And Jesus comes and he says, I don't deserve to die, but I will in your place. So you will never have to. That gives me hope. That's his promise. And let me tell you, when you and I are at a funeral, doesn't matter who it is, we're selfish. We think a lot more about ourselves than saying, oh, man, that's going to be me someday. And I always am at a funeral. I'm starting to think, am I living the way that I ought? How am I going to be remembered? But really, I have to deal with, I'm going to die someday. So will you. And you have a choice. Deal with it on your own and be dead or let Jesus deal with it and never die. And what he asks at the end, he asks this amazing question to Martha. He says, do you believe this, Martha? He makes it personal. He says, here I am. I've done this for you, but do you believe it? And that's the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning. Do you believe it? Because if you do, you will die, but you won't die. To those in this room, you're an atheist, you're a naturalist, you don't believe in life after death, you believe you rot in the ground, how in the world do you deal with that? How do you... How do you deal with the death of your loved ones? How do you deal with your own death? How do you deal with the the, the thing inside of you you know you were created for more and that you don't want to actually die? You should live on forever. How do you deal with that? Jesus says you don't have to. Just believe in me. It's all you have to do is you believe in what I've done, that I've raised up, I've been raised up from the dead. I will raise you from the dead as well. Isn't that beautiful? And in our grieving process and in death, Jesus gives us his presence. But most importantly, he gives us a promise. A promise that you and I can hold on to for eternity. So I want to end the service. I want to invite Kurt and Neil out. They're going to sing this song that's very, very impactful, at least to me. And it's, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. It's a reminder of a God who's done some incredible things in our lives and comes alongside of us in that struggle. I don't think Neil knows to come out, Charles, so why don't you tell him to come out. Hey, Neil! <laughs> Let me hear the door. You want to sing it? You can. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and then Neil and Kurt will come out. Father, I know so many in this room who are dealing with this tough topic. I see them. I know their story. I hurt with them, but so do you. You weep with them. Give them your presence. I just pray, Lord, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they would experience that presence like never before. But most importantly, they would recognize the promise that you give Martha, but you give to us. In you, we will die, but we won't. You hold the keys to eternity. May we receive that today. In Jesus' name, amen.